Welcome to today's episode of Public Anthropologist podcast series. Here we feature ideas and thoughts about issues that concern the public. Researchers are encouraged to translate complex social idea or theory into intelligible language which is grounded in empirical research. I'm your co-host Samya Pandey, a doctoral researcher at Christian Mikkelsen Institute in Norway. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with environmental historian and historical geographer Jason W. Moore. Moore is a professor of sociology at Binghamton University in New York. He is the author of the book Capitalism in the Web of Life. His most influential work radically upsets the nature-society dualism of capitalism, both materially and symbolically manifested in the logic of Anthropocene. Today, we'll be discussing the periodization of history, its framing, and the kind of role it played in shaping our interpretation of climate change and the inanimate world. Hi, Professor Moore. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's great to be here with you, Samya. Yeah, thank you. I actually want to start by asking you, do you think we are living in the age of Anthropocene, broadly conceived, where humans are the primary drivers of climate change? No, not only do I think uh, that's not the right formulation, but I think that formulation is, in fact, part of the whole intellectual and ideological architecture of the capitalogenic drive to planetary crisis. So that's a word we don't hear very often. We hear anthropogenic made by humans, which is uh, what I would call a big lie because it presumes something that is demonstrably false, that human beings are a collective historical actor. That's absolutely false. So we need to be naming the system and we need to have language that is as specific as possible. So the climate crisis is not anthropogenic, made by humans. It is capitalogenic, made by capital. Of course, capital broadly conceived as a as capitalism as a world ecology. And that means that we're looking at the, the uh, webs of imperial class power that have made and refashioned planetary life in utterly violent and disposable ways. The Anthropocene itself and let's just clarify from this from the beginning, has really three major moments. One is a geological moment. So this involves the Earth system scientists and others searching for what they call golden spikes or stratigraphic signals in the Earth formation. And what they've stumbled upon so far include chicken bones, plastics, and nuclear rest, uh, residues from atomic testing. There's another argument that highlights uh, the Orbis spike from the genocides, the slaving-induced genocides of the 16th century that we can touch on. That's offered by Lewis and Maslin. But for reasons that we should talk about, very ideological reasons rooted in the structure of environmentalism and neoliberalism and how they work together, the scientists in charge of the periodization want to say, no, it only begins very much later, uh, after World War II. So that's a geological Anthropocene. But there's a wider discussion called the popular Anthropocene, which is about the geohistorical origins and development of planetary crisis. And that has a lot of different faces, and we can get into some of them. By and large, however, they go back to a mythical event called the Industrial Revolution. Not mythical because it, uh, there was not something that happened. There was. But how we understand it is deeply rooted within a Eurocentric and Anglocentric view of world history that flatly is false. 
uh, even the idea that the key machine of the Industrial Revolution is the steam engine is patently misleading. Uh, arguably, the cotton gin and the reinvention of slavery following the American Revolution and the webs of international power and capital that uh, surrounded that process were much more pivotal. In other words, maybe the plantation revolution made uh, possible the Industrial Revolution. We can tease uh, the implications of that out um, um, and as we go on. And then finally, there are a group of what I would call the critical Anthropocenes, which seek to replace the systems theory of the Anthropocene with particularisms. So this is the case with Anna Singh's patchy Anthropocene, which I see as absolutely a disaster. It's the case with Technocene, Plantation of Scene, all these other scenes uh, that are seek to decenter capitalism from the making of the modern world. This is deeply intellectually problematic and ideologically disabling as well in the struggle for an internationalist front against capitalogenic, again, made by capital, capitalogenic climate change. So there's a there's a lot of terms floating around here, but basically we need to shift our thinking from abstractions, either large abstractions like man and nature, which are products of the rise of capitalism, or the particularisms that have been advanced. Particularisms are problematic, not because they identify the parts, but because they reify the parts and fail to understand their relationship with a wider whole what I would call the capitalocene as an art of the age of capital, the capitalocene as in a, a world ecology of power, profit, and life. So there's a lot of different moving parts here, but it's very important that we look beneath the surface because otherwise it looks to uh, many scholars and even more activists as a hodgepodge of word games. And there are word games that are going on. More importantly, there's an ideological struggle that's going on. At what point did you realize that there needs to be a shift of focus from Anthropocene to Capitalocene? And in the process, if you could just also elaborate on what you mean by it. Uh, so I've had a, a very unusual academic journey that's involved time in political science, sociology, geography, history, and many other disciplines. And part of that journey led me to understand that the structures of knowledge themselves and the institutional complexes of the world university system are deeply embedded in the reproduction of class power on a world scale and the drive towards the planetary inferno. There is, to paraphrase a term from the Vietnam War era, a climate industrial complex in which academics, policymakers, elite NGOs like Conservation International, uh, and imperial states are all in bed with each other. Uh, this is maybe systematized on a world scale most by the alliance between the World Economic Forum, key figures in the Anthropocene conversation like Johann Rockström, who regularly visits the Masters of the Universe at Davos, Switzerland every year, and uh, uh, large uh, um, uh, sort of sustainability for the rich operations across the planet. Let's remember that for 50 years now, certainly since the Stockholm Conference in 1972, there has been an effort on the part of the imperialist countries to suppress and contain the growth of the global south. And indeed, as we know from our study of neoliberal history, they succeeded during the 1980s when Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America were reduced to zero or negative economic growth at the same time as rapid uh, environmental devastation, extractive operations, agro-export platforms were in place, sweatshops were implanted in export zones, uh, all uh, under a deeply coercive 
and militarized forms of rule. So this led me to really grapple with the history of capitalism and the origins of planetary crisis, something that neither Marxists nor environmental historians wanted to touch. And for people who are curious, you can go to my website at jasonwmore.com. There are short essays, long essays, essays in well over a dozen languages. Hopefully there's one that uh, uh, you as a listener can be comfortable with. And uh, this led me to a fundamentally transgressive journey to to look at not only the history of the ideas that shaped our world, but also the history of the material and political economic and class conditions of the production of those ideas. So too often we pretend, scholars in the academy like to pretend that their ideas are somehow independent of the class politics of a given era. That's demonstrably false and we should embrace that reality in one way or the other. Otherwise we end up in the in Bourdieu's problem of misrecognition, that is, we recognize partial processes or we more we misrecognize them in ways that are tightly related to the wider structures of power, profit and life that obtain under capitalism and in different social formations across the world. So in other words, you have to look at not just the ideas, but the ideologies. And you need to look at the social and socioecological relations that encourage some to become dominant and discourage others. So widely advocates of the Anthropocene will say, uh, frankly, silly things. They'll say, oh, the Capitalocene is an ugly word. Well, first of all, we've been taught that anything that names the system is ugly. Anthropocene is not exactly Shakespeare. And we, we, so we want to recognize that dimension. And then there's the, the battle cry of co-optation uh, with and within the ruling class, which is, oh, it's unrealistic. And I think that part of what we need to do is to be as realist, as, as radical uh, as we can, as radical as reality itself, as Lenin used to say, in order to be ruthlessly and radically honest, to borrow a phrase from Raymond Williams. That's very, very difficult to do because the incentive structure of the world is lined up against us. Okay, so the the capitalocene thesis was evocative uh, for the sound reason that it's a geopoetic riff on the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene is the return of a a politics and debate of transition, but transition from what to what that remains to be seen. As I've argued, the Anthropocene and Earth system science infrastructure is an argument for planetary management. It is an argument for a techno-green authoritarian managerialism. And you can see see this up front with nature-positive discourses, planetary stewardship uh, metaphors, and the kinds of media and elite uh, circles uh, that really favor that kind of language. They never talk about democratization, for instance. So capitalism was a grand provocation first and foremost, to help us to rethink and unthink uh, the uh, the ways that, that empire and capitalists taught us to see like an empire, which is basically man versus nature. And that's in- incredibly violent. And it's at the tap, it's the taproot of naturalized forms of domination, foremost among them racism and sexism. All right. But the capitalist scene thesis itself says, if we want to understand the crisis, we have to look at its historical origins, We have to look at its patterns of development, and only then can we begin to discern what's new 
today. So the argument goes back to 1492, the rise of capitalism, the invention of civilization and savagery as a ruling binary, and the ways in which humankind, the majority of humankind, were sacrificed, if you will, to nature. The better they could be cheapened, the better they could be controlled, the better that that cheapened and devalued and unpaid work could advance the rate of profit. And that's at the beating heart of capitalogenic crisis and the devastations from the genocides of the New World in the in the 16th and 17th century, all the way up to the present moment of, of climate crisis. You're, you've been mentioning this periodization of history and um, how that gets interpreted. And I was wondering if you could, in fact, elaborate, how do you think this periodization of history has shaped our understanding of climate change? Well, it's not, it's the periodization exactly and how that's framed. So what surprised me over the past five or six years is the very large number of people who identify themselves as radical or somehow on the left who accept an extremely shallow, extremely not just Eurocentric, but Anglo-centric reading of the birth of capitalism, that it all began in England, that it, be, that it began with uh, inventive Englishmen and their inventive machines like the steam engine. There's a Marxist rift that people call ca fossil capital that has its insights, but it essentially takes that story, stirs in class struggle and says, voila, that's the story. And once we look at the history of it, we begin to see that its necessary preconditions were in the plantation revolution. Now, part of them were in England themselves. Let's remember that the coal mining revolution begins not in the 1900s, not in the 1800s, not in the 1700s, not in the 1600s. It begins in the 1530s and 50s. Indeed, by the 1550s, most of England's major coal fields were being worked. Now, this was only possible because of proletarianization, but proletarianization is not something that's born in England. And proletarianization has many, many forms that depart from the phenomenal ideal type of the fully, empl fully uh, employed wage worker. In fact, that's a statistical minority in the history of capitalism. As Wallerstein uh, uh, reminded people for 50 years, the normal state of the world's proletariat is the semi-proletariat. And what does that mean? It involves the semi-proletariat involves uh, a heavy, heavy foundation of unpaid work, overwhelmingly feminized. So I've taken to speaking of the femitariat, which is constitutive of the proletariat. And there's also, of course, the unpaid work of extra human life, the biotariat which is also foundational to modern proletarianization. But when we look at the actual preconditions, and I don't mean going back forever, but the actual preconditions of the so-called industrial revolution in England in the early 19th century, they were first of all the plantation revolutions of the West Indies, from which a critical increment of uh, investment was derived. That's where the capital came from to finance large-scale industry, not all of it, but a critical increment of it. This thesis has been around for a very long time, going back to Eric Williams in the 1940s. And indeed, it's implicit in Marx. And the other key element of this is the plantation revolution as it unfolded in the American South following the invention of the cotton gin in the early 1790s. The cotton gin amplified labor productivity 50-fold, so far more than any steam engine did, and uh, made profitable 
alongside the appropriation of another kind of unpaid work, the hirsutum strain of cotton that had been developed by indigenous peoples over uh, hundreds of years. That, that strain of cotton could withstand machine milling. That was appropriated. Of course, the, the territories of indigenous peoples were appropriated. And uh, a new, uh, more industrial and brutal form, even more brutal form of slavery under the cotton slave plantation regime was developed. This drove down the price of cotton and enabled the advance of large-scale industry of so-called industrialization. Now, that whole history is ignored. It's ignored even by advocates of the plantation scene, let me point out. And there's a, there's, there's a lot that's going on here. And what I'm suggesting by making that reference is that across the board with the Anthropocene and then the critical, what I'm going to call the critical Anthropocene, those people who want to talk about all these different scenes, but avoid capitalocene, that there's this, this rush to theory abstracted from what actually happened. And it's, it's what I've called uh, the flight from history. And the flight from history afflicts both the hardcore centrist liberal systems dynamics of the popular Anthropocene and these uh, grand narratives and the particularisms of the critical Anthropocene as well. It's like there's a, a rush to moral rectitude masquerading as scholarship. Yeah, I think that's an important point that you you just made. How would you respond to this current debate on climate change where uh, humans, irrespective of their class, gender, race, as well as caste, are locked in the current web of life and there is no escaping climate change? Um, say, for example, Professor uh, Dipesh Chokraborty's influential essays on the climate of history as well as politics of climate change where he's argued that uh, without having to cancel out the story of capitalist oppression, one has to understand that the politics of climate change is bigger than the politics of capitalism and uh, that all humans put pressure on the biosphere. And while the moral responsibility lies on the super rich, the impact will be borne by humans as a collective species, even if one were to argue that on a relative scale, it will reach some people before others. Where do you position yourself in this compelling debate? That statement that you read is is exactly illustrative of of some serious problems. First of all, we hear this all the time by the critical Anthropocene because they want to say that capitalism is not really the problem. And you can see how he does it in a very kind of sophisticated, wobbling kind of way. Like, well, capitalism is a problem, but really it's bigger. And he never ends up really specifying what that means. So that's a problem. There is a way to deal with this in a in a world historical and historical materialist way, which is to identify the long arc of class society going back to its emergence in places like Mesopotamia, uh, the Nile, uh, southern China, um, four, six, eight thousand years ago in different ways. And indeed, that's why we have the Holocene in the first place, as people like Redmond have pointed out, that the, the carbonogenic character of class society stabilized the Holocene and prevented a return to a new glaciation. But that's not what he's doing. Uh, Timothy Morton does this too when he talks about something called agrologistics, which is a fancy word for talking about the agricultural revolution. And then, uh, and this is very common in what passes for the critical theory of these things these days, there's no history to it. You know, he doesn't actually walk through the history of agricultural revolutions, which is a history of the emergence of class societies, as James Scott has pointed out, also of state formations and so on and so forth. 
that have tremendous that had tremendous impacts on the biosphere. Uh, it's uh, the Chakrabarty quote is a very is sort of a a, a woke version of Spaceship Earth. Like, well, you know, yeah, the rich bear more responsibility, but we're all in this together. I'm not sure what meaning what it means when he says we're all in this together. And he does a lot of tricky things, especially when it relates to, say, the Capitalocene thesis, which he hasn't really engaged. And you can see in the collection of essays just published by the University of Chicago Press that uh, he engages in rather serious misrecognitions uh, that, uh, I mean, I'll assume are honest, uh, but says, well, you know, more fails to deal with the two meanings of force as geophysical and social. That's exactly where capitalism and the web of life begins. And for those of you who are curious, I just happened to know this because I was teaching it, go and read pages 13 to 16 of the book. That is the concept of work energy that then gets played out in different ways that are a differentiated socio-ecological whole. And he also refuses, and I've read through these essays many times over the year, he refuses to deal with the beating heart of the Capitalist thesis, which is a world of re historical reconstruction of the origins and development of, of capitalism in the web of life, and the origins and development of planetary crisis over the past five centuries. I uh, So crucial ways in failing to engage the Capitalist scene question on its own terms he has uh, uh, led to further confusion. Finally, it plays into a neo-Malthusian trope that we see all over the left. That, first of all, that climate change is human-induced, and second of all, that it's an existential threat. I think that's false. I think there are existential threats, but to say it's an existential threat has to assume that the structures of capitalism, as we have known it for the past five centuries, will remain essentially unchanged through the present climate crisis. There's no evidence to suggest that that uh, will be the case. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that unfavorable climate changes historically have, have been a key moment in civilizational crises in feudal Europe, in the Bronze Age crisis of the, the ancient uh, Near East, of late antique Rome, uh, many other instances around the world we can identify. Uh, climate shifts were, have been tightly, uh, have been demonstrated to be tightly calibrated with the movement of steppe peoples into China. This is uh, uh, over long historical time. So there's this conceit that capitalism as we have known it is, is static and will continue and therefore will create a Venusian scenario where you know the, the earth uh, uh, becomes a kind of hot runaway hothouse effect. I don't, I don't think that that's true. I think there are existential threats in the world um, and the Anthropocene refuses to talk about them. The first of them is imperialism, which today has brought us to the brink of nuclear war. Uh, I think also, as Shauna Swan at Cedar uh, Sinai Medical Center shows in her great book, Countdown, the ongoing uh, uh, biological fertility crisis of the human species, that's something that has to be wrestled with. I don't think it's really going to extinguish us as a species. But let's remember that climate change is bad for capitalism and that the capitalists will transform. They don't care if the system is capitalism or some other system of unequal class rule. They will and indeed are already in different ways uh, organizing a strategy for dealing with the climate crisis and transforming capitalism into a very different kind of class society, although it could be very brutal, unequal, undemocratic, just like capitalism is.
Thank you. Uh, finally, uh, I wanted to ask you, how do you think the idea of capitalism um, helps us take the inanimate, inhuman, as well as other forms of life into consideration of climate change? Yeah, I mean, something very curious has happened. You see this a lot with uh, all of these object-oriented fetishes, and you see it particularly in anthropology and other uh, uh, fields. Like, all of a sudden, they discovered that substances matter. Of course, at the, the heart of dialectical and historical materialism is the unity of humans and the rest of nature. And uh, so what we have these days is a, uh, um, an anti-Marxist push to grasp onto one side of that. And so the response to anthropocentrism is all of a sudden we are going to go to various fetishized approaches of biocentrism, of things-centrism, this is, I mean, this comes, you know, as I'm sure you're referencing, this comes uh, into, into social science through people like Latour and then object-oriented ontologists who, uh, you know, who really lead to dead ends uh, in so many ways. I don't just mean intellectually, but also politically uh, problematic ways. So Latour especially, let's just look at where Latour has ended up and down to earth. And for all of you, those of you who have uh, quite understandably uh, avoided reading down to earth, I'll spare you uh, the the uh, uh, the experience is you can look at where he ends up, which is a defense of the European homeland. That's not my paraphrase. That's what he says. And you see this uh, in a lot of the critical Anthropocene, a turn towards what is sometimes called the defense of life territories or other forms of subaltern blood and soil nationalism that have uh, erased class. And they've erased class by removing class from colonialism. And this is, so these are these are topics of the, uh, the, the capitalist scene thesis explicitly rejects. The capitalist scene thesis understands, for instance, that uh, a resource like coal is just a rock in the ground. It only becomes a fossil fuel under definite historical relations. So for dialectics, things are relations. And this is what's been missed in the recent rush to adopt all of these particularist readings of, of socio-ecological process. So it's not wrong, and I've used the language of, say, multi-species assemblages and all of that, but but the you have to specify the specific historical geographical content of those relationships. It is not enough to say everything's connected to everything. That's actually not a progressive or, or much less a radical point of view. That goes back to a staple of bourgeois thought. It's causal pluralism says, oh, everything is connected to everything. This is actor network theory. Uh, this is assemblage theory. This is the new materialism. And Capitalocene says that, that uh, uh, it rejects both particularism and systems level thinking to understand that socio-historical processes emerge. They become they have definite laws of motion that are characterized by contradictions. So capitalism's drive to the endless accumulation of capital produces its counter tendencies. Those are not exceptions to the rule, but part of the dynamic of capitalism itself. And so the capitalist scene thesis reminds us, first, history matters. 
And how we historicize a problem tells us everything about the politics. It tells us that the world, especially the world under capitalism, is deeply and intimately connected, that those connections are not abstract. And we're taught that by the critical Anthropocene, that race and gender and class and colonialism are these abstract and metaphysical vectors that are somehow intersecting. And that's historically absolutely false. And it's politically totally disabling that they are intimately connected, that they have real histories of their interconnection, and there's no way to forge a unified struggle against capital without understanding how these differences are indeed differences that are unified under capitalist relations of power, profit, and life. So the capitalist scene is this provocation that grows out of a wider field called the world ecology conversation of activists, artists, scholars, some of them are all three, and, and a protest against the dominant ways of knowing, which tend to sort out not only the world into nature and society and uh, man, nature and civilization and all that garbage that comes out of, out of the civilizing project, but it also says we have to look at the ways that we make connections. So capitalist scene is not just a different scene alongside all the others. It emerges out of a fundamentally different approach from the particularisms of the plantation Ocene or the technocene or the whatever Ocene. And it also rejects the systems dynamic approaches of the Anthropocene in favor of a dialectical approach to webs of connecting humans and the rest of nature and looking at the specific forms that that relationship takes under capitalism. We can only know that through history. Theory can help us orient towards the history, but we can only know that through history. And it, so that's, I think, more than anything is, is uh, I say when people want to argue about the capitalist scene, I say, I'm not going to argue over theory because that's not what matters. What matters is our interpretation of history. If we want to argue over the origins of, of capitalism or the origins of imperialism or racism or any of these issues of plantations of technological development let's have an argument over what actually happened how can we know the present otherwise